to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study, say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and start by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I am a co-host of the podcast coming to you from Westminster Theological Center in the UK, and I'm co-host with Matt Bates at Quincy University in Illinois and Drew Johnson at the King's College in New York City, and that's not it, because today for the first time we're announcing that we are bringing on a fourth co-host, Erin Heim from Denver Seminary, and she's going to be joining us as a co-host and a fellow co-laborer in this OnScript project. So, Aaron, we welcome you, and we're really thrilled to have you. And you'll hear a little bit from Aaron in this episode, because the four of us were able to get together in Boston at the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting, and we had lunch together, and you'll hear a little bit from us interspersed with a bunch of little interviews that I was able to do at the conference with various people that I connected with there. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, remember that you can help OnScript out by giving monthly at onscript.study forward slash donate. Just $2 or $5 a month is a real help to us. And we uh, hope you enjoy this episode. You see them in the city is because there's concrete. They can't hide in the grass. Rats are freaky, though. (laughs) Freaky. So we should all say hi and, and identify ourselves here. We're, we've, we're having the um, OnScript uh, annual general meeting. So, uh, Matt, Matt, why don't you kick it off and just say what you ordered for lunch? Yeah, um, I was on the lunch ordering subcommittee, and I, I authorized the purchase of a Cobb salad for myself. But don't and, worry, we're not leaving a tip, so we're keeping it on the cheap. We're going we're gonna to leave a track instead of a tip. Um, Drew brought his stack of tracks, and uh, he's gonna. We're gonna be leaving a couple of those behind, which is in a way better. And then we have uh, we have Aaron Heim with us. Hi, everybody. And Aaron is. I don't know how we're announcing. Maybe we'll have already announced this, but Aaron's gonna be joining us as a co-host on OnScript, and we're very excited about that. Do you have any initial reflections of like what that means to you? I'm really excited to be joining the OnScript team, but honestly, uh, my initial reflection was, hey, the OnScript boys asked a girl to join their team. (laughs) Yeah, what have you found in terms of the dynamics of our, are we bro-ish? I don't don't know if I said this in my OnScript interview or if, if you listened to it, but I actually have an undergraduate degree in trumpet performance. So this whole broish mentality is one. Uh, you guys are nowhere near broish uh, enough to consider, like, for me to consider you broish. I suppose. <laughs> no, 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 that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. I played the, I did play the tuba, um, as a. Well, um, honestly, I only heard you up to Trump, and I wasn't sure where you were going with that. Et. You got to add the et at the end. Yeah, trumpet. Um, well, that's great. So, yeah, okay. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad you think it's great. 
All right, well, that's, um, that's the news from Boston, and we hope that you enjoy the montage that we put together uh, from, we've got a, a bunch of different people that we interviewed from our time here in Boston, and we hope you enjoy those. Okay, I'm here with my friend, J. Richard Middleton, who is professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in New York. And uh, he he's our first, second-time guest on OnScript. So, Richard, thanks for joining OnScript again. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you. So, I, I was wondering, we, we've been having this really interesting conversation about um, some of the work he's doing in the book of Samuel. And... Um, he's uh, so he's got two books he's working on right now. One in the book of Samuel, and then one on the um, binding of Isaac and the book of Job. And I'm wondering if you could just give a kind of snapshot, maybe some interesting insights from both of those projects. Okay. So my the bigger the bigger project is the um, the bigger project is uh, my work on the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22 and the book of Job, and I'm interested in um, the prayer of lament in Scripture. Um, which includes um, praying on your own behalf in times of trouble and praying on behalf of others. So one of my models is Moses interceding for the people at the Golden Calf. And my thesis is that God desires vigorous prayer. He wants a vigorous dialogue partner. And that comes from my own experience of needing to pray like that, not passive. And Abraham models that in chapter 18 when he intercedes over Sodom. But in chapter 22, when God says, sacrifice your own son, he's absolutely silent, except for saying, Hineni, here I am. Um, I've always wondered about that. It didn't make sense to me. And so I don't view Abraham's silence as totally positive um, because I would never want to do that if God said to kill my own son. I'd, I'd talk back. And then I find that Job is someone who is sort of like Abraham, but he's a Gentile version of Abraham, a patriarch, who is also called a, a fearer of God. Um, and there are many other textual connections between Job and Abraham, but Job argues back. And so I'm looking at the interconnection between the binding of Isaac and the, the Job story to learn how we can be vigorous dialogue partners with God in a broken world where we are also broken and we do not accept the brokenness, but we resist it in the name of God. Oh, that's really good. And, and so, so I guess for a lot of people, they look at Genesis 22 and say, it seems like Abraham's response of acquiescence to the divine command was a... a exemplary according to the narrator that it was uh, a model of piety what, do you see clues in the text to suggest otherwise so i see a lot of clues in the text and in the context of genesis to suggest it but i do want to say that my reading though it's suspicious is not a replacement for an idealistic reading it is an alternative and i want to ad adopt the point of view that for many people it's important to see abraham as exemplary and i honor that i'm not trying to break that down but to say that's not all that can be said. For example, just give you one textual clue. Um, the, the angel of Yahweh who speaks to God, speaks to Abraham afterwards, says, now I know you're a God-fearer. Therefore, didn't God test him to see if he feared God? And he did. Well, that's like me saying to a student after an exam, now I know you're a C student. That doesn't mean that's testing you for that. I was testing you to see if you'd been a student, but you didn't fail, but it's not the optimal response. That's the way I'm approaching it, and I have lots of textual details on that. 
And then you've um, also got this this book that you're working on um, about the the prophet Samuel. I'm wondering if you could just give a, a little snapshot about what you're doing in that project. Yes. So my book is on First Samuel one to fifteen, which is the story of Samuel and Saul and their power struggles, based on the research I have done in the past on creation theology. I know God uses power to bring creation into being, and we are the Imago Dei, and how we should be using power in our own lives ethically. It got me looking at how characters in the Bible use power. And, s and it seems to me, my intuition was that Samuel abuses Saul. He abuses the power of the prophet. And so I'm looking at how that works its way out in the, in the text. That Samuel is told by God to appoint a king when the people ask for one. But Samuel is threatened personally that a king would replace him as the spiritual leader of Israel. Samuel is also harking back to the old days before kingship when the tribal league in the time of the judges. And I also think Samuel disagrees with God that God is too flexible. God is giving in to the people's concession. And Samuel is of the old school that God should be immutable. Um, the word he uses that God is netzach, which means continuous or perpetual. And, and I would say impassable would be the equivalent. But God is more like the God of open theism, <laughs> in a sense, who concedes to the people and, and changes and adapts. And Samuel abuses power. And God does back him up because he's a prophet, and he ends up destroying Saul. So I'm looking at those power dynamics. And, and what are the, some of the ways that you see that project connecting to um, the, the lives of people in the church? So I think that when you idealize leaders in the Bible, what you tend to do is you idealize leaders in the church. And um, leaders then get a free pass. And there's all kinds of abuse, both psychological and power struggles and sexual abuse, too, in the church. And we need to hold leaders accountable. And when you read the stories of the Bible, looking for the complexity of people, the good and the bad and the ugly, then you don't idealize those in power. But y the biblical prophetic point of view really is that you stand with the poor and the marginal and the suffering, and you ask, what's God's word of justice in this situation? So I have an ethical stance that I think is important for us thinking about how we use power, especially those who have authority, both in the church institutions and in non-church institutions. I'm very interested in the ethical implications of this. Well, Richard, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with OnScript, and congratulations on being the first second-time guest. My pleasure, Matt. Blessings. What other fears do you have? I have an undergraduate degree in psychology. I can help you do these things. You, you look like you have a, you look like the kind of guy who has a list of nervous things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are, the, what are my neuroses? Gonna get I'm gonna guess you're afraid of heights. No. No, okay. No. Um, do you like uh, snakes? No, you don't like serpents. I like snakes, okay. Really? Okay, so. I hate bats. Bats? See? Bats. Why bats? They're furry. They're uh, cute. They don't actually okay, have mosquitoes. Well, that's a that's no, a that's a myth. This yeah. is a real story for why I hate bats. I was always a little bit freaked out by them, but um, the truth of the matter is that we kept having a bat die in our attic, and uh, the bats, as they died, would like end up at the bottom of our stairs, and so you'd open the door, and there'd be like a dead bat, which is freaking. It was freaking me out. Yeah. <laughs>
freaks me out. I thought it was dead one time. <laughs> and I got the broom to sweep it up, and it started flopping around. I was, like, beating it, like, like beating, beating it with my broom until it died. Like, and wait, after wait, that, I'm, I'm not even joking. Back. Ever since then, I have been, I've been, like, my fear of bats has quadrupled at least now i really do have a neurosis about bats i was just i was a little bit afraid of them before then but uh, it was really attack me oh, i'm running low on battery we'll see how this goes okay test good all right i'm here at sbl with michael heiser who is uh the host of the, the naked bible podcast and he also works at Logos Bible Software. And I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself and a, a bit of his work, which I, I came across first when I was doing uh, my uh, doctoral dissertation on monotheism. And you've obviously done some work there. So, Mike, thanks for joining the OnScript podcast, and uh, we'd love to hear about you. Yeah, I, uh, I, my field is Hebrew and Semitic Studies, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I've been working for Logos since 2004, which is the year that I finished my doctoral work. And, you know, we've been doing the Naked Bible podcast for about three years. It's, uh, you know, the audience has grown, and which is really gratifying because our mission, you know, is really to get content, uh, solid content that's made comprehensible to the non-specialist, to non-specialists, really anybody who, who cares. You know, there are a lot of Christians out there that uh, they've been believers for many years, but they really don't have uh, sort of a lot of Bible under their belt. They have a lot of questions, a lot of disconnections, again, in their thinking, uh, and they just want to become better readers uh, of, of Scripture and just understand what they're reading a little bit more. So that, that's what we try to do on the podcast and, of course, on my website. My homepage is drmsh.com. Uh, and of course, you could go to nakedbiblepodcast.com. But that's that's what we're trying to do in uh, podcasting. Unseen Realm, of course, is what a lot of people will know me by. And that was a 15-year putter project. Uh, it was born, uh, as I write in the book, of some things that happened to me and some awakening points that happened to me in graduate school. And I can remember sitting in, in Memorial Library uh, chasing down probably something on Deuteronomy 32 or the Divine Council, and and just seeing, seeing you know just points of connection between the Testaments, between ideas, between concepts. You know these threads that run through the Bible, uh, really a attaching to things that I had heard of before in the New Testament, but never really realized where they came from. You know that that all this stuff comes from somewhere, <laughs> and it happens to be my Old Testament. <laughs> Again, it understood in its in its ancient context, and I was like many people. I was filtering the Bible through my own tradition. Uh, I was filtering out things. I was sort of intentionally or unintentionally like not seeing things and not not wanting to think about things. And when I sort of turned the corner there and decided, you know, I I need to get serious about understanding the Bible in its own context, not something that comes later. Uh, it really opened up to me, and I was sitting in Memorial Library thinking, this is so much fun, this is so awesome. I, I wasn't a newbie, I'm a doctoral student, you know, and it, it's like I'm reading my Bible again for the first time. And the thought struck me that, yeah, th this is fun, all right, but most people in church, you know, most, most people are not going to go to grad school, and they'll never have this experience. And I, I just thought, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> 
and it occurred to me, you know, you, you can do this. You could take this kind of content and make it comprehensible. And so I sort of began what would become Unseen Realm during graduate school and I just chipped away at it because I, I had a job, I had a family, I was in grad school. I worked full time through graduate school. So it was five minutes here, 10 minutes there. And it, it took me 15 years, but we, we got there. And the book has been really well received. Um, lots, we're about 650 reviews on Amazon. They're overwhelmingly positive. I have scholars and professors just comment on, the, you know, they appreciate the book. So it's been well worth it. There's, there's more, you know, like that, but that's sort of the, the centerpiece. So you've referred to the book, The Unseen Realm, and maybe before uh, hearing a little bit about your, your newer books, uh, you, could, you could describe for our listeners uh, what you mean by a divine council worldview, because I've heard you use that phrase before. I think, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with the idea that in the Bible there is such a thing as a divine council or other heavenly beings um, in, in the divine, the heavenly court, so to speak. But, but to then move to, to say... Um, I'm, I'm advocating for a kind of divine council worldview seems like a step further. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean by that is, is the, the more you learn about God's relationship to the heavenly host, again, in, in an Israelite ancient Near Eastern context, it begins to inform you about, you know, really heavy-duty concepts like destiny. You know, what, what is our destiny as believers? Who are we? concept of imaging, the concept of participating with God, you know, in, in, in doing things he wants done in this world. So a divine council worldview really uh, tries to get people to consider the notion that God's relationship to his non-human, his supernatural family, and the way he created them to image him. You get the plurals in Genesis 1, and it involves these other, these other beings, uh, again, this other family, that the way he, he looks at them, what they were created for, what their destiny ultimately uh, uh, is, you know, this, this cooperative participation idea, all of those things inform how we should be thinking about ourselves in terms of what it means for us to be imagers of God. You know, what, how do we participate with, with God? The, the ancient people were very predisposed to the notion that the supernatural world intersected with ours a lot. There, it was normative. It was normal. Uh, they, they didn't distinguish between that world and, and their world as, as though they were two things that, you know, never the two shall meet. I mean, they, they met all the time. And as we're, we read Scripture, those things become a template for how we, again, think about our relationship to God and, and just, just how he thinks about us and what his plans are for us. So that's a very basic level. Uh, again, this template idea, this, I'll give you an example. Why is it that believers are called, you know, hagioi, holy ones? Again, I hate the translation saints <laughs> because you, you miss the connection to the Old Testament right away. Well, who are the holy ones in the Old Testament? Well, predominantly they're, they're supernatural beings. And, and again, they, they're, they're the sons of God. They're in God's family. They work with God. They participate with him in making decisions and carrying out his will. Well, that, that's what we're supposed to do. So that this, the language has a history. And it, 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 that the older history can inform the way we think about our, ourselves. Why are believers said to be children of God, sons of God? Why do we have adoption language? Why do we have inheritance language? 
Again, it goes back to what, what God was doing on earth in the Old Testament, not only with Israel, but again, with the nations disinheriting them and then a plan to reclaim them. All of these common notions in Christian thinking are rooted somewhere. Why are believers going to be glorified, or the academic term would be deification or theosis? You know, why, are, why does Hebrews 2 consider us, you know, siblings of Jesus and members of his family that he will introduce to God in the, quote, congregation, in the council? Why do we have this stuff? It's because God's original plan was to have a blended family. That's what Eden was. Eden was the place where heaven intersected with earth. God wants a blended family. He wants humans fit to live among and and enjoy him with his supernatural family. All of these these are threads. And we can we can read them in isolation or skip them or filter them out. And I'm just trying to get people to to think like a supernaturalist, to think like an ancient person predisposed to supernatural activity in our world and that the Bible was often written intentionally to sort of cover that ground. Um, it, so in a sense, is your work making explicit what the Bible by and large presupposes and, and perhaps alludes to at different points? Or do you see it as a kind of foregrounded concept throughout the entirety of Scripture? Yeah, I, I kind of like your, your first description because, again, I, I do think we've sort of lost the set of assumptions or the worldview framework of the ancient person because we're modern. We're products of the Enlightenment. We, we don't think about the world uh, and really an unseen world and its relationship to our world the way they did. And so I am trying to, again, just track through the Bible and say, look, again, like in a small group Bible study, if we're in this passage and we're all sitting in the room and you'll go around, and, oh, what does this mean to you? If you had an Israelite in there, their answer would be a lot different. <laughs> It'd probably scare you <laughs> than, than ours, you know, and that's because they're just processing things in a, in a quite a different way. And so I'm, I'm trying to get people to read Scripture with the Israelite in their head, again, predisposed to uh, thinking supernaturally. And, you know, the first century Jew, it's the same thing. So there's a lot of things that are sort of under the, you know, under the radar and just beneath the surface of the Bible that they would have just picked up on immediately. They would know what to do with the strange passages, why they're there, what, what's, what the writer's trying to communicate, because it's their world. Mike, you have uh, two books uh, out recently. Maybe you could just introduce those uh, so our listeners could be familiar with where you've taken your work since The Unseen Realm. Yeah, I have uh, two books published by Lexham Press. One is called I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. Uh, it's <laughs> and the follow-up volume to that is the Bible Unfiltered. Again, taking the, the you know the Bible the Bible's context seriously. What they are is they're collections of my articles uh, in Bible study magazines. So they're written for the layperson. They're short. Uh, there's 50 in each book, and and I get into a lot of the the kind of content I do in Unseen Realm in detail. Uh, Unseen Realm has a light version called Supernatural where there's no arguments, there's no footnotes, there's no academic jargon. It's just the core ideas. But, but these two books actually, again, sort of you know, back it off even a little bit more uh, for the, someone who's just getting introduced to thinking about their Bible.
Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk about your work. And again, people can find uh, out more about what he's doing at drmsh.com. And uh, you can, or Amazon, of course, uh, if you want to look for, for the books that he's mentioned. Mike, thanks so much for joining OnScript Podcast. Thanks for having me. Prescription is you have to go to the hospital and get uh, the rabies shots. Like yeah, you don't seriously. even take a chance. If you go, to, if you tell a doctor there was a dead bat in my room, they will give you the rabies shots. Seen, we, yeah, we we put up a bat house in our house in Atlanta, so we were attracting them. Have you, have you ever seen the movie Old Yeller? I didn't. I didn't want to see it because I, I knew the dog dies. That's why you shouldn't like bats. You would. You might end up foaming. Our next guest is Shola Akala. She's a colleague of mine at WTC, and she's also here at SBL. So I thought I'd grab her and ask her a few questions about uh, her work. And she's a she's a John scholar. She teaches New Testament at WTC. Shola is also a fellow at St. John's College in and Durham University. And I'll let her introduce herself and talk a little bit about her work. So Shola, thanks for joining OnScript. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. It's a pleasure to be able to introduce myself and also to be part of the WTC um, team, um, which I had my first introduction early this year, January, when I taught on Luke. And um, I look forward to further um, contributing further to the vision of WTC. So it's been wonderful being here at um, SBL in Boston. And um, as Matt said I'm a Johannine scholar primarily. That's that <coughs> that was the launch of my academic um academic um interest is in the Gospel of John. So my dissertation was on the Gospel of John and and it's now published um by TNT Clark and it's um the title is The Son Father Relationship and Christological Symbolism in the Gospel of John and um I'm also doing other works on John, written an article recently on the eternal subordination of the Son in the Gospel of John, and I'm also on the Johannine Literature Stirring Committee here at SBL, so able to participate in how further um, program units um, develop for the next year, next few years, yeah. And um, out of John, my interest... um, out of John has grown an interest, a theological interest on the glory of God, which of course transcends John and goes into other areas as well. And I convened a conference last year on the theme of glory. And this year I had, that was an academic conference, and this year I had another conference specifically for glory, the gl- entitled Glory of God in the Church. And so that's another academic pursuit. There is a gap in the area in the study of that theme of glory and um, trying to bring different multidisciplinary voices together to fill that gap and to let's um, discuss what, what the glory of God is. And then my next, my third main area of interest as a scholar is on Paul. So I find myself now turning into a Pauline scholar as I've been working for the past three years on a book on Paul, which I'm 
um, writing for InterVarsity Press called The Prayers of Paul, which focuses on every single prayer text in the Pauline corpus to do with thanksgiving, blessings, benedictions, doxologies, intercessions, and petitions, and Paul. And after wading through all those texts, especially the long um, Pauline prayers that um, consist of 14 verses, which are one sentence in the Greek text, <laughs> wading through Paul's um, complicated language. Um, but it's it's been really interesting and um, although challenging in terms of volume, but it's been interesting to be able to see into Paul's heart as a as one who prays and also as a pastor and how that connects. And basically, the uniqueness of the book is to, to see what is the connection between Paul's prayer and his theology, because there's a lot that's been discussed about Pauline theology, but his prayers have not been brought into the discussion and his prayers are really vital because the first um, aspect of Paul's theology that we encounter in his writings are his prayers. Those prayers are highly theological. They talk of the Father, they talk of the Son and sometimes of the Holy Spirit and talks about different um, Christian virtues like love and faith and hope and also there's a lot of eschatological content in the prayers of Paul as well and so I'm going to glean all those um, theological aspects and just try and figure out is Paul praying his theology or is he just praying out of his heart and then we, we glean um, the, his um, theological principles out of that but of course I haven't got to that chapter yet and so that's what I've been been doing <laughs> uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier when you were describing your your work because some of our listeners may have been aware that there was a big kerfuffle um, a, a number of well about a I don't know if it was a year ago or so about the eternal subordination of the sun and you mentioned that you had written on the eternal subordination of the sun in John and so there was this big debate about the where several scholars wanted to to link eternal subordination of the sun to the eternal subordination, well, the, at least the practical subordination of women in the church and elsewhere in society. And I was just, are you able to give like a snapshot of, of was that a link you were making or were you dealing primarily with the theology? That was the link. Um, the, the essay I wrote is, is part of a volume, which, of course, is coming against that um, that um, push towards the eternal subordination of the sun is equal to the subordination of women in all aspects. And so I was kind of drawn, I've been drawn into that controversy. Um, and particularly in John, which is what, um, which, you know, a lot of the texts that the those who propose the eternal subordination, a lot of the texts they use are in John. And I wrote my dissertation on the son-father relationship in the Gospel of John, so I had to deal with the son-father relationship. And even though I did not focus, my focus was not on on the subordination, but I I did deal, I did, in the conclusion, I did have to consider the, the gender-driven language in, you know, even the term son-father relationship. And also the, you know, I did speak a lot about the subordination. And my con the conclusion in my dissertation in the, in the published book was that um, Jesus had to portray himself as um, 
subordinate to the father because he had to model what a relationship with God um, with the father is for the disciples he came as a model for the disciples and so he had to show them how it is to relate to the father because we have that in the prologue about children becoming the sons you know about about you know believers becoming children of God and that's what um, Jesus came to show us the way to the father but anyway in the essay my main yeah the essay was to to show how um, you know to, to show that you know to, to explain the subordination of the son in the Gospel of John. And I also had to interact with the early church fathers. You know, how did they interpret all these verses? The father is greater than I. Um, I can't do anything except what I see the father do. I mean, they're, they're, I mean you, cannot, you, you, you cannot ignore that there are subordination texts in the Gospel of John. And, but the reason is, how do we interpret those subordination texts? And the, the main thrust of my argument in the essay is that John um, presents Jesus primarily as a son sent from the Father. In fact, the title, the Father's title in the Gospel of John is the Father who sent me. That's, you know, that's the title. That's the main title of the Father. The Father who sent me, the Father who sent me appears similar. So in the, in the very act of sending is the essence of subordination because if you're sent, you're sent by someone and you obey someone. And so because Jesus is presented as the sent son, you know, the subordination is unavoidable. Um, but then that's part of the missionary, that, that's part of his mission on the earth is one sent from the father to um, reveal the father. And, and so the context of the submission is primarily in terms of his mission and, um, and also the fact that he came as a model for us and to know how to submit to the father and yield to the father. Yeah. Now that's a really helpful description. So is the basic idea then that if the language of subordination is related to the sending of Jesus, you can't derive eternal principles from that. And then also, if his subordination is modeling something, it's about Jesus' humanity in su submitting himself to the Father. So for, so for neither of those, could you then extrapolate some eternal principle about Jesus' divinity? The essence, yeah, that's really right. In terms of the essence of, it's all related to his mission on earth. It's all related into his mission. Or that somebody had to come to earth, and that person came to earth in the Gospel of John within the context of sending. And so when he went, you know, so his return to the Father, even in the, in the in um, John seventeen, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had. And so in his returning to the Father, he's not returning back to. Uh, a position of subordination not at all because the first thing that John tells us is the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was God and, and that's why that comes at the very beginning of book to let us know that what follows after needs to be read through the lens of Jesus Christ is God, is equal with God. And so whatever follows after has to be read through the lens of the lens of the program. By the time you get to the by the time you get to the end of the prologue, we see Jesus is coming to reveal the Father. And so we already have that issue of being sent um, you know, to the world and um, to reveal and then by the time you get to 17 he's going back to John 1 where he was equally God that's why he said exactly reveal you know restore unto me the glory that I had before yeah so we see that 
that's a that's a great description. Thanks so much. And Shola, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with OnScript, and I will be seeing you back in the UK. Yeah. Great. Bye. bats either. I'm with Matt on this one. So when I, one of my earliest memories as a kid was we used to go to my grandma's house and she lived out in the country and our whole family would be there for Christmas. And I had a whole bunch of cousins. So we'd always have to share a bed like downstairs on the, like the pullout couch. And there'd be three of us in sleeping bags. And one Christmas, uh, the kids were in bed and my mom comes flying down the stairs at midnight screaming bloody murder. No, because she was being chased, she thought, by a bat. And, you know, she thought, well, there was a bat. I don't think it was chasing her, but there definitely was a bat. And so... And my grandma's staircase had three different stairs, like sets of stairs and two different landings. So you hear boom, 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 push, and then like down the stairs. So my mom comes flying. The three cousins that are sharing this, this you know, pull-out bed are all like hovered in our sleeping bags. And my mom is trying to break into the sleeping bags because she's scared of the bat. And wow. she ends up hiding underneath the hide-a-bed until my... No, there was a bat. And so she... <laughs> so she continues to scream. My uncles have to get up and try to try to kill this bat with a broom and a ladder because my grandma's ceilings were so high. Oh, and and I, I'm you with you. I'm, I've never famous. recovered from that. <laughs> There's a famous bat. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm here at SBL with Christina Featheroff, and she is going to talk about her, her dissertation, which... Uh, she and I met just recently um, at a, a steering committee meeting, which is all very exciting at SBL. And uh, she's going to talk a little bit about her work on lament and trauma in the Psalms, uh, which I think is a fascinating topic. And maybe you could just introduce yourself and a little bit about your background and how you got into this. All right. So my name is Christina Featheroff. Um, I completed my PhD at the Graduate Theological Union back in the fall of 2016. Um, I wrote my dissertation on um, lament, uh, specifically Psalm 22, as a means of healing from trauma, looking specifically at intimate partner abuse. Um, and the way that I, I sort of stumbled onto this topic, I originally was interested in prayer, and then I was living with a bunch of seminary students. I lived in the dorm out there, and they kept asking me, Christina, what are we supposed to do with what we're learning? You know, I, I can't preach archaeology. So they challenged me to think about real-life applications of texts. And in the process, I stumbled onto Christian spirituality. And one of my professors made a comment about Esther. Um, in the Jewish tradition, Psalm 22 is read as the prayer of Esther. And it made me completely rethink Psalm 22, because as a Christian, that's Jesus' psalm. Um, and I had the impression that it was Jesus' psalm alone. And so it opened up this whole new um, perspective on Psalm 22 for me. And it made, thinking of Esther and Esther's story, it made me think of her as a victim of um, an abusive marriage, um, which might 
be reading a little bit much into it, but she definitely was not in a healthy marriage. (laughs) And so um, it just kind of snowballed from there. Esther didn't really make much of an appearance in my dissertation, but that was sort of the groundwork. Um, But I'm really interested in how we can apply biblical text to today into real life situations. And my basic argument is that the lament form sort of mirrors the healing process laid out by trauma studies. So you tell your story and it's heard and the community embraces you and it just kind of works through that um, whole series of steps. And, and so what's, what's the effect then of, you know, so, you, so you're looking at trauma theory and of course trauma theory is not done with an explicitly kind of theological framework. What, you know, wh- where are the points of overlap and difference in, in your understanding of the lament psalms and trauma? So, yes, there's definitely within trauma studies more generally there's not necessarily a spiritual or religious aspect, but there's been in recent years a lot done with it within um, biblical studies and religion more generally, religious studies more generally, um, to bring it more into that realm. And so there is this idea that there's a spiritual aspect to healing um, that has been brought into um, process outlined by uh, Judith Herman, um, I believe it was Pamela Cooper White, added a fourth step that was that spiritual step, um, but it's sort of intertwined throughout. And so that was more what I was using in my dissertation was that part where you also have that spiritual um, part. And so I w- looking at the Psalms, especially since I was looking at an individual lament Psalm, um, my argument was that God was the audience that the psalmist or the abused woman needs uh, to hear her um, and to listen to what she has to say and what her story is. So how do you, what are some of the ways, practically speaking then, that you imagine churches taking up the practice of lament? So I think that's something that churches struggle with a lot. Um, I'm working with my church right now um, and then during lament, or not lament, during Lent, they're going to incorporate lament as part of their uh, prayer time. And so I've been working with them about how we can engage in lament in a healthy way um, and to acknowledge the fact that life isn't always all great. And sometimes we need that space within church to acknowledge that things really suck right now. Um, And so I think that's part of it, being willing to allow things to not be okay all the time Um, and to realize that it's very biblical. Even Jesus at times (laughs) was not all okay. So, Yeah, I mean, um, I always think of the, the verse in Hebrews. I don't have it off the top of my head, but that Jesus was, throughout his life, he spoke to God with many tears and, and cries, and it, and it wasn't just on the cross. That's like the culmination of Jesus' life of lament that then led to, oh, and then weeping over Jerusalem as well. So it just seems like there's a, a strong uh, precedent in Jesus' life um, for that practice. So, well, uh, Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript, and I wish you the best in your ongoing work. Thank you very much.
Have you read What It's Like to Be a Bat? It's a philosophy article. Thomas Nagel. Yeah. Yeah. And there's... The premise is, is that uh, there, if there is something that it's like to be a bat, if there's something that it's like to echolocate, uh, to fly, if there's some collection of qualities, then those can't be reduced to physicalism. It can't be merely chemical processes. There's something outside of chemical processes. Even if you don't, if, even if you don't know what it is, you're admitting that there's something. Our minds have a quality then, yeah. that, our, that our pure brains can't capture. Okay, I'm here at SBL with Davis Hankins, who I went to Emory with, and he's, well, first of all, hi, Davis. Hi, it's good to be here. So you're co-authoring a book with Brennan Breed on the book of Ecclesiastes, or you're co-authoring two books, right? That's right. We started off um, with a contract to write the commentary with a history of the use and influence of Ecclesiastes for um, a new series. And while we were working on the historical context for that commentary, we um, began to look into the period when we think Ecclesiastes was written, and we realized that it's rather um, uh, mispresented by many biblical scholars. It's a hundred-year period after Alexander the Great's conquests and before the Maccabean Revolt, which really gets um, overlooked by many scholars. And so, and, and yet there's a lot of Jewish literature that gets written in that hundred-year period, including Ecclesiastes, and so now we have um, tabled or uh, somewhat tabled the commentary and are focusing on a book on the third century in Judea. Yeah, I should should, uh, realize I should probably introduce you a little bit here. Um, So you teach at um, Appalachian State University, or did you say Appalachian State University? No, 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 no. no. Appalachian. Okay, all right. Oh, okay. So... (laughs) <laughs> so, so insiders say Appalachian. Okay, yes, good. Right. I did that right. Um, and and you wrote your uh, you you publish your um, dis- dissertation on the book of Job, and that was on Job twenty eight. Is that right? Uh, no, it was on the whole book of Job, okay. except for um, some of the s- chapters that don't matter as much. <laughs> <laughs> it was the frame, the, the narrative frames. Are you, is that what you're uh, dethroning? Everything except for Elihu's um, speeches. Now. I take offense at that. I wrote an article on Elihu's speeches, and um, which you can look up in JSOT 2000. Well, I don't know, actually. Um, okay, so back to the Ecclesiastes stuff. So you're saying that the book of Ecclesiastes is written in uh, like Ptolemaic period? Okay. So this period after the Greeks um, conquer the Persian territories and the empire splits up into various kingdoms. And so the Greek rulers in Egypt, known as the Ptolemies, from whom like Cleopatra would come in that line, they rule um, Judea and Syria, southern Syria, and other parts dotted around the Mediterranean for um, about a little over 100 years before the Greek rulers in Syria defeat them, and it's shortly after that that the Jews erupt in uh, outright revolt, in the Maccabean revolt. But there's a hundred-year period where you have Greek rulers in Egypt um, doing a lot of really interesting things in their territories, and you find really interesting um, Jewish literature being written by Jews in Judea at this time. And we think there's more correlation between what's happening administratively with the Ptolemies and what's happening intellectually with the Jews. So what's the impact of reading the book of Ecclesiastes against that backdrop? I mean, there, in terms of content, there are things that Ecclesiastes is um, struggling. Ecclesiastes is commonly seen as a very odd book in the Hebrew Bible because it's um, critical of the tradition, the wisdom tradition in which it um, you know, sits somewhat uneasily. It praises um, folly and, and wisdom. Um, there's a strong sense of, of um, 
that life doesn't, the world doesn't hold together. And there's a, a kind of basic fundamental futility to life that is manifest in all, across all aspects of one's life. And then thematically, there it's got heightened concerns with kind of uh, space and time, like the famous poem in Ecclesiastes 3 about a time and a season for this and that and everything else. But then the point of the poem is that no one ever knows what time it is. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's a heightened sense across um, Ptolemaic territories at this time of try, trying to understand the world, one's place with respect to traditional ways of thinking about the world. And um, we think Ecclesiastes is responding to some of those larger intellectual developments um, in, in, in many ways. So that just scratches the surface. So, so what's one uh, interesting insight from the book that you've kind of pulled out as you've, from the book of Ecclesiastes that you've pulled out in your, in your study uh, with Brennan over the last, I don't know, how long have you been working on this? Uh, I mean, we've been working on all, all of these questions for a couple of years, I think. Um, one text that's well, there are a couple of them. One that came up this morning in a paper um, that is the place that I mentioned earlier where Ecclesiastes recommends um, holding on to both wisdom and folly, not to be too... So traditional wisdom had um, comfortably split the world into this homogen, rather relatively homogenous space of wise and wisdom on one side and fools and folly on the other. And what Ecclesiastes uh, notices is that both... Uh, break down. And in a way, you get uh, a kind of exclusion of the exclusion of wisdom from folly so that you're to hold on to both of them, but not in some way that would suggest that it all adds up, that that vanity remains and futility um, is, is manifest in across our lives. And so there's a new sense of uh, the world kind of hanging together in a way that's always sort of crumbling, um, and, but in a total, in a total, uh, from a totalizing perspective that I think uh, is unrepresented in earlier Jewish texts. And then the other text that's really important for us is that one on uh, the commentary on the time poem in chapter three, where in verse 11, um, it's a very uh, difficult verse to translate and to understand, but God puts what in Hebrew is olam, and it gets translated in this um, expanded way in the New Revised Standard Version as uh, a sense of the past and future, like all of those words get used to translate one word. Um, but God has put this olam, commonly translated eternity, or this um, sort of eternal dimension, this timeless dimension, into the human heart. And God has done that so that humans won't be able to find out what some kind of overall sense of God, what God's up to in the world. So it is this break with time that's inserted into the temporal and historical uh, span of our lives. It's always disrupting continuity and our sense that the world holds together and that we can figure out what time it is. Well, Davis, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time uh, to uh, uh, talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, and we look forward to uh, seeing uh, these two publications uh, by you and Brennan Breed. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, I'm here with Ayo Adewuya, 
and he's uh, taken the time to speak with me uh, about his work. I'll let him introduce himself. And uh, Ayo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. Uh, maybe you could just share a little bit about your uh, research and uh, your writing and, and where you teach. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon and to meet with you. Uh, I'm Ayo Adewuya. I'm professor of Greek and New Testament at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, Cleveland, Tennessee. And I'm an African, and uh, my passion is to write things that use and make my Africanness, my Africanness to bear on this interpretation of the scriptures. I'm currently working on a book on the letter of James, the title of which will be An African Reading and Reflection. Uh, but I've been privileged to author quite a number of books, and the latest is Holiness in the Letters of Paul, which, according to some of the scholars, is probably the first comprehensive writing or treatment of the subject of holiness in Paul's letters. And one of the things I try to do, uh, coming from a Wesleyan background myself, is to highlight the fact that although Wesley has done a lot, Sometimes we have taken the subject of holiness in a very contrived manner, limiting it to one thing, which unfortunately is not what Paul would have done. Because when you read Paul, you will find out that he uses various terminologies and vocabularies. So when you look at holiness in 1 Corinthians, for instance, it's not the same thing as holiness in 2 Corinthians. Although people will look at the terminology of Hagios, uh, holy, but Paul doesn't use that word all through. You don't find that word in Galatians, for instance, but that does not suggest that holiness is not present because Paul talks about walking in the Spirit, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and all that is not possible uh, without the Spirit, but that's a way to articulate holiness in Galatians. Uh, when you come to Philippians, it talks about imitating Christ, walking like Christ did. So when you come to different letters, you see Paul's view of holiness. And so what I've tried to argue is that uh, the language of holiness in Paul is polyvalent. It's not just one thing. You have to look at it in a very broad sense. So there is the, it's an ongoing dynamic thing. There is an instantaneous aspect of it for sure, but holiness is a journey. It's, it's something we continue to work on. So while we talk about the instantaneous aspect, we can equally talk about the ongoing aspect of holiness. So that's what I've tried to do in the book and taking it through, putting it all together. And of course, I decided to deal with all the Pauline couples. Now, I, I'm afraid some people would argue that some of the books were not written by Paul. Well, I understand all that, but that's not my purpose. My purpose is to look at the canon, the way we have it. And so all those letters attributed to Paul are the things I dealt with. So that's about uh, that book, for instance. So you mentioned that uh, you, part of your mission as a scholar is to bring your African identity to bear on the interpretation of the Bible. How, how has that shaped your uh, understanding of holiness in in the letters of Paul. Yeah, one of the things I've tried to highlight is that the presentation of holiness uh, in scholarship, particularly coming from the West, has been overly and if not almost all the time individualistic. And I would argue that although holiness is certainly personal, it is not individualistic. 
it, it has a communal dimension to it. So I would argue, for instance, in my book, Holiness and Community, I specifically talked about being sanctified by the community. So the community has a role to play in holiness. Nobody can deny that we are formed that by the community of which you are part. And when you look at the language of holiness and Paul, I mentioned just a while ago the word hagios. Paul uses that word in the plural all the time. He doesn't use agios or agioi in singular. It's always plural. So together we are called to be a holy community. So it's not just a matter of on the Jericho Road, there's room for just two, just Jesus and you. It's just it's Jesus and us. It's just not about me. So holiness is communal. So and that flows from my understanding of community life as an African. Now that's a really helpful description. And so yeah, and I think too of the the image of the the body of Christ as a temple um, for the spirit. That's a communal idea and not about the simply about the spirit inside me as an individual. Um, is, is there a concept of personal holiness in Paul? Is that a is that an important strand in the Pauline letters, or or would you say it's predominantly communal? Absolutely. You see, I try to argue that we're not trying to replace one ism with another ism. So we're not trying to replace uh, individualism with communalism. When you look at Paul, there's always a juxtaposition between the individual and the community. Although on the balance, you have him referring to the body as a temple, the church as a temple collectively, but at least on one occasion, it refers to the individual person as the temple. So there's this juxtaposition between the individual and the community. And for Paul, it's not either or, it's both and. Uh, an individual is important as a constituent member of the community. So we derive our importance and all that from the community, but the individual person does not get subsumed under the community as a whole. So there's that tension in Paul, or if you want to call it ambiguity, and Paul is content enough to live with it. And if Paul is content enough to live with it, I'm equally content to live with it. Because we get to help, we get into Christ on personal level, but we don't continue the journey on a personal level. We become part of a body. So we enter the journey on personal levels, but when we enter the journey that's the end of it, we become part of a body. And therefore, we continue to go together and not just as individuals. And there's one more phrase that just caught my attention that you mentioned earlier, um, and you said that the the community sanctifies the individual. Um, could you explain just briefly what you mean by the community doing the sanctifying? I'm used to God doing it, but not the community. That's quite interesting because it is very true. Let, let me give you an illustration. What's the role of the community? Let me give you an, an, a quick illustration. It doesn't matter how prayerful you are, once you get a community, your prayer life begins to be affected by the community. If you are a prayerful person, for example, and you come to a community where they don't pray, or they don't pray as much, now you have only two choices. It's either you pull them up, that they can pray like you, or you go down to their level. And in most cases, because it is easier for somebody at the bottom of the well to pull down somebody at the top of the well, so it's always good in the other direction. So if you belong to a body where they are committed to living, if you belong to a body where they are committed to living holily and justly for God, their life begins to affect you. 
you pray together, they, they talk together. So the community actually has a role in the sanctification process in the sense that we are shaped and formed by the community of which we are part. Yeah, thank you very much. I, uh, I appreciate you spending the time to speak with OnScript, and uh, all the best to you in your work. Thank you very much. It's such a great pleasure and honor. Okay, I'm here with uh, Zeb Farber, who I went to Emory with. He was also in the Hebrew Bible doctoral program at Emory. And uh, Zev is an ordained rabbi, and he's, he's a civilian uh, right now. And uh, he also works for the Torah.com, and I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Um, but maybe first you could just introduce yourself, your, your background, how you got into biblical studies, and, and also a little bit about your, uh, your dissertation, which has been published uh, now. Sure. Thank you, Matt. Um, <clears throat> so my background is I, I grew up traditional Jewish, uh, what you call a day school yeshiva education. So I've been reading Bible in Hebrew since I was a kid. Uh, as far back as I, I can remember. Um, I eventually found that I really liked doing it, and I wanted to do it at a different level, at a scholarly level. Um, so that started me down that path, which eventually ended in my, in my work at Emory. Um, I did, uh, my dissertation was on Joshua, specifically his image in the Bible and how uh, later groups understand him, especially uh, different later groups like Christians, Jews, Samaritans, uh, and how each one can connect to him but still see something relevant to their own religious tradition. It's called Images of Joshua and the Bible and their Reception, which was, uh, came out with uh, De Gruyter last year. Yeah, maybe um, it'd be good to hear a bit about your work with the Torah.com, which seems to be really taking off um, as, a, as a website. If, if uh, our listeners haven't, haven't visited the Torah.com yet, uh, check it out because uh, there are some great articles. And, and they're not just... They're not just your average blog post, are they? No. So actually, it, it is interesting. Uh, the com was uh, the brainchild of someone named David Steinberg, who used to be involved in uh, what we call the Jewish community Kiruv, or re a religious outreach. Uh, and eventually, uh, he realized that, uh, that the academic approach towards Bible made a lot more sense, and he sort of shifted gears to doing outreach towards biblical scholarship. Now, he needed somebody to be an editor of the website who was both trained in critical scholarship, source criticism, redaction criticism, etc., but also had a strong traditional uh, Jewish background so I could work with Jewish texts. And I was ideal for the job, and I had, was just finishing my PhD. Our goal uh, we publish every week two or three articles. They're, they're vetted articles by me and a very senior Bible scholar named Mark Brettler. Um, and they're highly curated, highly edited to be uh, readable. Uh, they do pure critical scholarship, meaning there's, there's non-apologetic uh, scholarship. And our idea is that which happens in the universities to make the Bible more understandable and to make us understand how it was put together and what it meant uh, is now accessible to the average reader in pieces that are around 2,000 words, all concepts explained, all Hebrew translated, etc., etc. Uh, it's actually quite popular now with thousands of hits uh, every week. So um, just to give our, our listeners a flavor for some of the work that you um, do on, on the Torah.com, uh, you were talking to me about the article you wrote recently on Rachel and Leah. Uh, could, you, could you explain your, your thesis regarding that story? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the things that's often bothered readers of the story is 
how it is that Jacob falls for the trick between Rachel and Leah. As we all know, uh, he thinks he's supposed to marry Rachel. That's what the deal he made with his father-in-law, Uncle Laban, uh, and finds in the morning that it's really Leah. So all the Bible says is that it was night, so you know when it was dark. But most of us would think if we were dating someone for seven years, uh, darkness is, is not going to cut it, right? Uh, why didn't uh, Rachel say something? Why didn't Leah say something? Uh, how did Jacob not quickly realize that their conversations were not the same? In rabbinic tradition, they, they come up with all these tricks that Rachel taught Leah, all these secret words that they used to use with each other so that she can mimic her sister because she felt bad for her. Uh, but that's, of course, a stretch to try to answer a problem. I think that, that, that the real problem is we're, we're projecting modern notions of romance onto the story. I think if you read the text, you'll see that, that Jacob, it says he loves Rachel because she's more beautiful. And when Laban asked him, what does he want? He said, I'll work for you for seven years uh, for your daughter, Rachel. They agree. And then Jacob goes and works for him. Working for him means uh, tending the sheep and wandering around. He does that for seven years. Then it says he comes back and he says to Laban, uh, where's my, I, want my, I want my wife. They have a party. The party is only men. They don't have a wedding. There's a wedding. They have a party. And then that night, Laban brings her. Uh, I think that simply Jacob did not know her well. And in the morning, uh, when Jacob is shocked to see Leah, Leah is just as shocked, and perhaps more so, to find out that Jacob doesn't really want her. So, so Leah didn't know, um, and Jacob was uh, perhaps drunk? Or are you saying that he, he didn't even really know what Leah was like because it's been seven years? I think that, uh, yeah. So drunk is actually, that's how Josephus... Uh, and rabbis referred to as Balea Tosvot in the 13th century try to handle it. They say that Laban had the party to get him drunk. I don't think it's about drunk, though. I think that they didn't know each other at all. They barely ever, they probably barely ever spoke. Uh, the voice was not much different. Uh, and there was no contextual cues, right? So he just, uh, she was a woman and it was dark and that was it. And he imagined it was Rachel and it wasn't. Zev, what's been the most popular article on the Torah.com? Uh, the most popular article, uh, so there's, there's two. One of them that stands out very, as very popular was an article, was written, one of the few articles we ever accepted that was written anonymously. I mean, we knew who the author was, but the author could not reveal his name because uh, he was a Satmar Chassid. Oh, we know it's a him. Right. So well, we, we signed his first name, but not his last name. Okay. So it is a him. It, it was by a Satmar Chassid. His article is called, My Name is Yoel. Uh, and he talks about his upbringing and how uh, excited he was to find biblical scholarship and how upset he was to find that any time in the Orthodox Jewish world there was an attempt to deal with it, there was sort of a aggressive, crushing, you know, attacking response. Uh, and he was somewhat reacting to my, my article, which is the other very popular one called Avram Avinu is my father, which means Avram, my father, our father is my father, where I talk about my own uh, journey from... Uh, more classical faith to uh, academic faith. I think that his was interesting because, uh, you know, it, that this type of thinking is even seeping into the Hasidic world, which is a very cloistered world. Uh, and still, uh, I think a lot of people are much hungrier for critical scholarship than a lot of people realize. And do you know of any uh, Hasidim who are um, reading your uh, blog? Any of the uh, Haredi in, in Israel, for instance? Uh, yes, there are many. Actually, three years ago, 
there was a uh, Facebook group of Hasidim that they, they were using anonymous names and they wanted to have a talk sponsored by the Torah.com. I was going to give the talk. We met at a place uh, Brooklyn. We met at some place in Brooklyn that they organized. Uh, and since they use fake names, that it was funny to see two people say, "What? You're here? You also read the Torah.com?" Like, yeah, oh my he's my study partner, Yeshiva. Oh. We never talked about it though. Oh my <laughs> so you see, I I think that uh, a Hasid a Hasidic Jew said to me, he said, "You know, I used to find reading Bible boring because you weren't allowed to ask hard questions." And then I started reading the Torah.com, and now I find it so exciting that I believe in 100 years, everyone's going to have to read uh, the Bible like you do with the critical scholarship. We'll find out about this and more at the Torah.com. Zev, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. Thank you very much, Matt. Listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast. And stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.